So, Mark. Yes. In this week's movie, we see men with a bunch of different jobs. One of them is a magician. Another one is a painter. Another one is a sausage magnate. Sausage king, as he says. The other one, I don't think he has a job. He takes off his shirt, but he is explicitly not paid to do it. He has a portfolio, and he's on a bus. Which is not the same as having a job. But we have never seen him paid to be a model. Yeah. So my question is... Yes. You have to choose one of these four jobs, and I want to know which it is and why. They are the quintessential job typology quiz. When you have little kids and you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're like, firefighter, sausage king, street magician, artist, half-naked dude. Hmm. Obviously... I'm going to go with Sausage King, because free sausage... It's kind of the obvious answer. It's the right answer. As he says, there's a sausage for every emotion. And every time he sends her a basket of sausage, I'm like, I will be pursued by Danny DeVito and his multitude of sausages. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the only correct answer, but artist also, valid career choice. Street magician, mm, taking off your clothes in public with no one paying you for it, also questionable. I do love the moment where we see him standing outside one of those shops that had shirtless dudes outside, which is a phenomenon I had totally forgotten about. Oh, when the first Abercrombie and Fitch opened up in Singapore, they had a line of shirtless men in Abercrombie sweatpants standing outside for weeks. I had totally forgotten that was a thing, where they would just try to lure you in by being like, look at these hot dudes. Which is odd, because they were so intimidating and mean looking. Right. My consciousness of those places was more so the heavy aroma of, like, Axe body spray wafting out the door. I think they have a signature scent, Will. So what you're smelling is the Abercrombie smell. Well, it smells like garbage. But that is, I think that was a deleted scene, and it was by far the best deleted scene. Oh, you're right. That might have been in the deleted scenes. That's why you watch the DVD, kids. Yeah, that is a great one. That I paid a dollar for. Honestly, good deal. It was a good dollar. It was a good spending of a dollar. This movie we will get into, but this movie was a wild ride. It's just so strange because everything about it tells you that it should be dreadful. But it's kind of not. It is the lowest Rotten Tomato score movie where I enjoyed it, not because of how bad it was, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just kind of charming. Now, if you put any other performers in the movie, I think it doesn't work. Yeah, I don't think... I think they cast it perfectly. Any changes, and it would just be awful. We're getting deep enough that I think we should just get started and talk about the movie. Yeah, I think so. Welcome to We Love the Love. grab your sausage and get moving. Yes, this episode has a mandatory sausage-eating listening rule. Ooh. Anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast committed to examining the most pressing, urgent issue of our day. Namely, which sausage goes with which emotion? And does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And is there actually a fountain of love in Rome? I mean... Are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it's induced by a mysterious magical fountain and a poker chip. Either way, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at the end of an era. We're talking about When in Rome, the last movie solely produced by Touchstone Pictures. Whose first movie, by the way, was Splash! We'll do a good chunk of Touchstone, then. 
were doing their two touchstones. And of course, if you were to look at the poster for When in Rome, you would see in very large letters from the studio that brought you the proposal. Really? Yeah. What are the rest of the Touchstone movies? So it's kind of all over the place. Touchstone was founded in 1984 by Ron Miller, who at the time was the CEO of Disney. He was Walt Disney's son-in-law. And the idea was just, this was a place where Disney could produce movies that didn't fit the traditional family brand. For example, in addition to Splash, they produced Pretty Woman. They produced a lot of the movies where Disney partnered with Jerry Bruckheimer. Things like The Rock. Like Pearl Harbor was a Touchstone movie. Wikipedia describes it as dormant. As in, yeah, under Touchstone Pictures, it has a line in the, like, quick facts box that says, Fate. Dormancy. Yeah, it was never formally shuttered. Touchstone doesn't put out really any movies these days. Every once in a while, something will be tagged with it, but not really. And it declines basically because of three big factors. One is something we've talked about a lot on this show, which is the decline of mid-budget movies, things like these rom-coms, where today you see micro-budget, small stuff, your A24, Blumhouse kind of thing, or you see franchise tentpoles. Touchstone sat in the middle, and we don't really make those movies anymore. Number two is Pirates of the Caribbean, which showed that Disney could make a very PG-13 movie, and people would still go to it and wouldn't reject it from that brand which made Touchstone less necessary. And number three is in 2009, when DreamWorks stopped distributing its own movies, they signed a deal with Disney to distribute live-action DreamWorks movies under the Touchstone banner. And so rather than develop new movies for Touchstone, Disney, which had just bought Marvel and is pivoting away from mid-budget movies, put out these DreamWorks movies under the Touchstone banner. Hmm. That is very complicated. Yeah. Also... This is such a weird movie to end your run on. I mean, I don't think they were like, hmm, we're closing down Touchstone. What should be the last one? When in Rome! (laughs) I know, but it's still just like, this is the last film in Touchstone. And it is a movie about a woman who takes coins from a fountain and men fall in love with her and sexually harass, verging on assault her. I feel like it's a nice mirror to Splash. Another semi-mystical New York romance movie. That one's a bit more mystical, considering she is a mermaid. Yes, but this one involves straight-up enchantment of people. It's true. I was really surprised at how heavy it leaned into the magical realism. So something I did not know is that this movie is actually the inverse of a 1954 film called Three Coins in a Fountain, which is about three women who each throw a coin into a Roman fountain and then find love. So this is the reverse of it, where Kristen Bell takes three coins out of the fountain and the people who had thrown coins in then fall in love with her. It never really explains how they're all in, like, I guess it's just the magic of the fountain, but she ends up with coins only of people that live in the same city as her. Yeah, that doesn't come up. Yeah, it's never explained. you just gotta gotta roll with it. Yeah. I just, this movie is, it's like a good movie ate a bad movie. (laughs) Where it has the perfect blend of the qualities of both. That you get the fun of watching a good movie, the fun of watching a so bad it's good movie, all at the same time. Or you're watching it and it's like, do I hate this movie or am I genuinely enjoying it? I cannot say. Well, maybe this will tell you where that sort of particular magic comes from. This movie is directed by Mark Steven Johnson, who has had a fairly inauspicious career. Like, his most high-profile movies that he directed were Daredevil with Ben Affleck and Ghost Rider with Nicolas Cage. Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider! But he co-wrote this movie, and he also has a screenwriting credit on another movie that we've covered on this podcast, actually. Which movie? 
Mark Steven Johnson, director of When in Rome, is one of the four credited writers on the 1998 film Jack Frost. Oh my god. That's insane. Will, Ghost Rider Look, got so a... No writer is better than no writer. Ghost Rider got a sequel? Yeah, Ghost Rider colon Spirit of Vengeance. Oh my god. When in Snow is better than no snow. I don't know. I was trying to make that one really did not work for you. <laughs> I was trying so hard, and it. I was really hoping it would come to me, and it did not. Anyway, to get back to your original question, there is not a fountain of love. The closest thing, of course, is the Trevi Fountain in Rome, which it is illegal to remove coins from. Yeah, I think they're all donated. Yeah, and also taking somebody else's out is like you're stealing their wish. So, Mark, why you got to take my wish? Why you got to take my wish? Hashtag why you gotta take my wish. Are you that does it sounds like a song. Are you supposed to wish for love in it? Like why you gotta take my wish? Cause I'm doesn't, just trying to get around like a fish. Oh swimming through the world, doing what I need to do. Don't take my wish. Alright. Anyway. Is the wish in the Trevi Fountain supposed to be about love? Because isn't that what Lizzie McGuire wishes for, too? I don't know if it has to be about love. That is what Lizzie McGuire wishes for. Why didn't they just use the Trevi Fountain? I I think because they wanted to build all these extra, like, enchantment legends around it. And so all the stuff about, sure, to break the curse, you've got to throw the coin back in the fountain. Or you've got to give it directly to the person who put it in. Once you start building lots of rules, it's easier to have it be a fictional place. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So the money from the Trevi Fountain subsidizes a supermarket for Rome's needy. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, good use of the money. Yeah, I support that. But yes, the Fountain of Love, on the other hand, the coins have to stay there or else the curse would just, like, anytime someone spent the money from the, like, supermarket for the needy, would then the love be transferred around? Yeah, I wonder. It's a similar situation to what I wonder about with Curse of the Black Pearl, where we know the Cursed Treasure of Cortez, if you take it out, then you have the Moonlight Curse. But it doesn't transfer if it gets sent to another person, because young Will Turner and Elizabeth, when they had Bootstrap Bill's piece of the coin, didn't transform them at night. Right. So maybe it would be the similar thing, like, if I took money out of the fountain, I would be cursed to fall in love with you, but if I used that money somewhere else, the curse would not transfer beyond me. Yes, but then you would lose the ability to make them not fall in love with you, too. Right. Which would be... So you would just have to love me, Mark! Yeah. Why can't you love me? The weirdest part of this movie is that she becomes friends with these men. It's very strange. I just have to talk about that now. I guess it's kind of like they were literally under a spell, and she saw the spell break and then maybe they became more normal but and she invited them to her wedding yeah we'll get into the wedding more because that definitely plays a role in our uh rating oh definitely but it's still just that was the honestly the weirdest choice in this movie so the movie when in rome is about Kristen bell going to a wedding in rome pulling coins out of a fountain and the coins make the men who threw them into the fountain fall in love with her Like I said, it's based on this movie, Three Coins in the Fountain. This movie was released on January 29th, 2010. It opened in third place behind Avatar, which was still in first place in its seventh week of release. And Edge of Darkness, a Mel Gibson action movie that basically doesn't exist anymore. The most interesting thing about the release of this movie, though, is that Don Johnson, who plays Kristen Bell's dad, but is uncredited in the movie for some reason, and John Hader, who plays Lance the magician, co-hosted WWE's Monday Night Raw to promote the movie. 
And I really want to meet the intersection of those two fandoms. Yeah, I'm really curious what person saw this and then was inspired to go watch When in Rome. Right? I'm really just... Can I say, when they were making it so clear, they repeated so many times that she would only be in Rome for 48 hours at the beginning, I assumed that the movie would be about the 48 hours. Yes, but it turned out to be just her trying to get her boss to be cool because Angelica Houston is a hard boss. Yeah, we all have sisters, Beth. The weirdest, <laughs> what the heck? I know. She says at a meeting, like, I'm going to Rome for 48 hours just for my sister's wedding. And her boss's reaction is, don't go because everyone has a sister. And we all skipped their weddings. It makes no sense. She's such a mean boss. But I think she's one of the most unrealistically mean bosses. Like, Yeah, because you compare her to, like, Melora Hardin in 27 Dresses. She is kind of mean, but plausible. Right. This boss, on the other hand, is just, like... She's like a, a she's like a witch. She's like Lady Tremaine in Disney's Cinderella, where she does just, like, callously controlling things to make the main character look foolish for no reason. Yeah, she's just vindictive to a level that doesn't make sense, because it would probably impact performance. And I guess maybe it's comparable to the boss in A Christmas Kiss... Yes. Where it's, again, just, like, such unrealistic expectations. Man, I rewatched Christmas Kiss this past year. Holds up. Still great. Uh, I was bummed to miss that movie night. It's not on Netflix, so I had to buy a DVD of it. Oh my god, you own this movie? Yes, I do! Oh, good. That means it'll be there for next Christmas. And every Christmas following. Oh my god. Should we start breaking down the romance of this movie? Yeah, why don't we do it? I tried really hard to find a lot of stuff about this movie... 2010 is right in that window where there could be a lot on the internet, or not so much. I tried to find anything, and the most interesting thing I found, which I did not read, were a pair of slash fix between the Will Arnett and Dax Shepard character. Oh my god. And that was on, like, page two of the Google search results once you remove reviews. So there is not much internet presence for this what? movie. Oh my god, huh? I'm... Mm. I'm struggling with that one. Why those People two? wanted Will Arnett's Italian accent to have sex with Dax Shepard's shirtless body. Actually, one person. One person wrote both of the slash fix. Uh, that makes more sense. Yeah, this movie definitely, I got the vibe watching it that there was absolutely nothing dramatic about the making of the film, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. Like, it clearly was not made super slowly. Like, it was just churned out. Everyone showed up, acted their part, and then went home, and that was basically it. I feel like everyone had a nice time. Yeah, I mean, they went to Rome. Fun vacation. Actually, and also to a in... restaurant with no lights! Did they film in Rome at all? I don't know. Uh, that restaurant scene is wild. It's fantastic. It was a very quintessential, wait, Kristen Schaal is in this moment. A thing I've said so many times. So many times just watching movies for this podcast... All right, we should really start getting rolling before we <laughs> jump all over the place. Okay. Well, there's not a... Pro- oh, there it is. Filming took place in Tratford, Pennsylvania. That's not a real place. <laughs> that's... That's what? If you've been to Tratford, tweet at us, tell us about it, hashtag get tratted. Tell us everything we need to know. Trafford doesn't even have a Wikipedia Wait, is it, page. Is it Trafford with an F or Tratford? How do you spell this? T-R-A-F-F-O-R-D. Okay, never mind. Tell us the funniest thing that happened to you in Trafford. Hashtag Laffy Traffy. Okay, so it does have a Wikipedia page. They just didn't link to it. What's the deal with Trafford? Trafford. Um, 
there are 3,236 people living there. (laughs) Hashtag Laffy Traffy. It is 98.27% white. Okay, that's a Laffy Traffy moment. And um, the median household income was $32,925. Well, I hope everyone in, in Trafford is doing okay. I, yeah. Uh, trivia, parts of the movie Kingpin were filmed in Trafford, and the okay. Trafford City Alumni Sandlot football team was the first team to ever play the Pittsburgh Steelers on August 28th, 1940. Did they win? Does not say. Okay. We'll say they did. Yes. The uh, Nope. <laughs> 49 to 0. Ah, uh, that sounds more like it. Yeah. Government and politics. They should make a movie about that. <laughs> the government and politics section is empty. That means it's an anarchist collective. I hope so. What a weird choice for a movie set in Rome. Hey, you know, you do what you gotta do, I guess. Will, you should go look at their, like, Wikipedia picture. It gives you a real sense of the place. This is like an alley. I know. Is that a dirt road? I just... I don't oh, know. Oh, no, it's paved. I feel like the same street from the other end would be a more interesting picture. All the signs are facing away from you. I know, that picture could be done better. Weirdly. Be better, Trafford. My god. Anyway... Uh, should we start breaking down the romance? Oh, they voted for Trump by, like, a large margin. Oh. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly the place that did. Yeah. (laughs) I just read your points, and one of them is just Danny DeVito is a good sausage man. He is a good sausage man! Get started so I can talk about my sausage man, Danny DeVito. Alright, so every week we break down the romance into five points. This week we are beginning with a point Will has labeled the exposition dump, the most accurate description of a movie I've ever seen. I mean, we wait our whole lives for some perfect guy to come in and sweep us off our feet. Well, guess what? He's not coming. Again, we said this movie screams at you from the beginning that it should be a terrible movie. It's just like, we're bad! Every line of dialogue in the first scene is dreadful. So Kristen Bell plays Beth and she is a museum curator, and she's at, like, some fancy event at the museum. And we have the most ham-fisted dialogue between her and her friends, who we basically never see again, about how, like, oh, that guy might be looking at me, but it's best if I steer clear of him, given my track record. And one of her friends goes, oh, yeah, because Brady dumped you like last year's trash, a thing that friends say to each other. They're just shoving exposition down your throat. And then Brady, who is weirdly Lee Pace... Shows up and is like, oh, yeah, you know, I was wrong to say you put your work before a relationship. Like, that's totally okay. And she's like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is awesome. And he's like, because I met another lady who puts her work first, and she's great. Um, I just found the quote from American Dad that perfectly sums this up. One of the best jokes they've made is Francine's on the phone and she says, What? I've never called you sis before? You're right. It is weirdly clunky and expositional. I mean, I know you're my sister, so who am I saying it for? Weird. At one point, when we first meet Kristen Bell's sister, she says, Sis! I know, it's amazing. Anytime someone says their relationship to a person in some weird, familiar, like, sis or bro or something, I immediately think of that scene because it is exactly why that is written. Anytime it's said. I always think about Diana Rigg in The Great Muppet Caper when she gives a whole rundown of her relationship with her brother and says, it's plot exposition. It has to go somewhere. It can be done smoothly. You can introduce 
these characters because you can always just have the person describe their relationship to someone else so you could have her say to her friends like oh my god my little sister is getting married after knowing a guy for two weeks boom you don't have to say sis which no one actually calls each other Maybe we should commit to doing that. Whenever we see somebody, we should just greet them by our relationship. Like, hey, sis. Hey, friend. I kind of say hey, friend sometimes. Oh, no. (laughs) Friend. That is true. And it's like, I've never called Suzanne sis, except for when I'm making fun of this, I think. But I do say like, hey, friend. Or you do say like, hey, my love is a thing people do say. But that's the only natural one. So I think we should start doing that more often. Like, when we greet each other, we could say, like, hey, co-host of a podcast we do together. Or when I see Fiona, I could be like, hi, sister who lies to me. Like, there's a lot of stuff that comes built in here. So we will not give a pass to this scenario where Kristen Bell goes home from this event after learning Lee Pace is engaged to another woman. And there's a knock on her door, and she opens it, and a woman even tinier than Kristen Bell is behind the door and shouts, sis! A thing no one says. I think Kristen Bell is on a box this whole movie. She has to be. She's such a small woman. She's 5'1", and Josh Duhamel is 6'4", which means it would be impossible for them to stand next to each other and it not look weird. Yeah, she must be on a box. I want to see how tall- I'm going to try and see if I can find Alexis Zienia's height. Okay, while you do that, I want to talk about what I learned about Josh Duhamel, which is that- He has been nominated for seven Teen Choice Awards during his career. And most importantly, he won a special Kids' Choice Award that, as far as I can tell, no one else has ever been awarded, which is an induction into the Arm Fart Hall of Fame for being the best at arm farts. Uh, what? He demonstrated this at the Kids' Choice Awards in 2011 while dressed as Justin Bieber, because Bieber did not show up. And he was given a statue of somebody doing an arm fart after winning and told to sit in a throne in which he was immediately slimed. That is the strangest thing I've ever heard. Isn't it? It's so weird because the first time I was ever really aware of Josh Duhamel was as the hot dad in Love, Simon. Okay. Which is a perfect plane movie. Both Nick and I independently watch it every time it's available on a plane because it's the exact right level of emotion for a plane ride. So I've seen that movie like two or three times now just because it's on planes a lot. Uh, also, her sister is 5'2", which means Kristen Bell is on a box. Definitely on a box. But her sister is also, regardless of how tall she is, is quite tiny. She is. She is very, very thin, too. Yeah, and she has a small head. Yeah. I say this as a big-headed man. <laughs> yeah, so Josh Duhamel is one foot and three inches taller than Kristen Bell. So anyway, her sister shows up, and she has a ring. She is engaged, which is news to Beth. She met this dude, Umberto, on a flight to Italy two weeks ago, and they are now getting married. I think she's a flight attendant, and so she was a flight attendant for a first class, so she also knew that he was rich. Yes. And, and I will honestly, say, the two of them live a great life. When the movie starts, you're like, wow, this is this movie is going to be about her disastrous relationship. Like the way, it, to bring it back again to 27 Dresses, Melin Ackerman rushes into this marriage with George. But no, instead, she just has a lovely time. Later, we see her and her husband, like, naked baking together. Yeah, they're on their honeymoon right by famous monuments in Rome. And they're so in love that they often just end conversations with her by making out. 
it was honestly kind of refreshing to see her sister in a happy relationship. Yeah, I was into it. This movie definitely is actively subverting some classic rom-com tropes, which I also enjoyed, because Kristen Bell never trips. Josh Duhamel runs into several poles and is hit by a car. They make the man the klutzy one in this one. And it After works for me. that he's a football player. Yeah, but he's a football player who was struck by lightning, so maybe that affected his balance. Yeah. The other thing that's honestly a perfect example of how this movie works Having someone just run into a pole when they turn around kind of always works. Easiest joke (laughs) gets me. But this movie, it worked every time. I never got sick of it. I laughed when he hit the pole the first time. I laughed when he got hit by the car. And Bobby Moynihan was driving the car. Yeah, this movie has a lot of very quintessential small role in rom com actors. Yeah. So sisters getting married. So. Beth, Kristen Bell, has to go to Italy for the wedding, even though Angelica Houston is not happy about it. So she goes there, and she's at the wedding, and this is where we first meet Nick, Josh Duhamel, because he is the best man. He's got a clip-on tie, he's late to the wedding, he can't pick up his phone somehow, he's like, scattering it across the floor, constantly trying to grab it. I don't know if you can see, Mark, but I'm gesturing that he's moving his hands around a lot trying to pick it up, but he can't do it. It's like he's trying to pick up one of those weird water-filled tubes that you used to get as a kid that would just slip out of your hands. Yeah, but it's a cell phone. (laughs) Yes, it is something that a normal human should be able to just pick up. But the wedding manages to go off, and there are lots of weird rituals that they keep insisting Kristen Bell participate in, one of which involves smashing this vase, which she is utterly incapable of doing. And Nick comes in and saves the day by hurling it at a pillar and helping her out. At one point, Kristen Bell throws it on the ground, and it just bounces around, and it ends with her throwing it, and it bouncing into the stomach of the grandmother, and again, such a cheap joke, somehow landed perfectly. And it's at this moment early in the movie where we've been given a lot of exposition, and you're still like, what? What is happening? What is the tone? How is it working? But it does kind of work. It's 15 straight minutes of exposition where you learn nothing. Because none of it impacts the actual plot of the movie. Right, Lee Pace never comes back. None of that stuff matters. Yeah, she picks up the coins and the movie does a complete 180 and is about something completely different. Okay, so let's get to that. So the wedding is going on. She and Nick start flirting a bunch. At first, she's kind of resistant to him. She's like, please, I can see that you're a dumb man. And he's like, no, actually, I'm pretty charming. And they're having some nice banter, like they don't like each other, but they do. And they dance a little bit. And at one point, the lights go out, and they hold each other very close. It's very Christmas kissy, actually. Yes, but then it turns out that she was trying to get his phone because he has better signal, and she needs to send a work email. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Because that is what their flanter is about. A word I have now learned from Love Island, Australia, that is short for flirty banter. I have not heard that, but we should adopt it into our vernacular along with folationship. Yeah, because we watch a lot of movies with flanter. So they part ways for a bit, and she chases him outside, being like, I'm going to get with this hot man. And that's when she sees him with a sexy Italian lady, and they kiss, and she's leaning on Nick. And so then Kristen Bell is sad. So she walks into the fountain and for some reason starts pulling coins out of it. She's drunk out of her mind on champagne and is just yelling at the concept of love and is like, I'm going to steal these coins from love, I guess. Something like that. It doesn't matter. It's all just getting us to the premise. I did like that this movie didn't have the weird thing where 
the lead woman almost immediately rejects the charming hot lead man for no apparent reason where in this one Kristen bell's like yes please i would like to sleep with josh duhamel like most humans would yeah but then her heart is broken and then she hates love and then all of a sudden four strange creepy men are in love with her right so she pulls the coins out of the fountain and we quickly cut to shots of these men like sitting up with a dramatic look in their eyes and the first of them led you and me to shout out loud just Danny DeVito. I know. I was not expecting Danny DeVito to be in this movie. And he's always such a joy to see. He's got real, like, Matilda-era Danny DeVito energy in this movie. Yes, but nice. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking, like, narrator of Matilda energy. Not Mr. Wormwood in Matilda. He's really not playing Frank Reynolds either, which is what I see him no. most as now. So... It's Danny DeVito. It's Will Arnett as this maybe Italian painter. Oh, no. We learn he's definitely Yeah, we learn he's from New Jersey. He's from New Jersey. Which, didn't you call? As a joke. And somehow got it right. A lot of our jokes paid off. So, he is a New Jersey, like, shoe store worker who has a foot fetish and is pretending to be an Italian painter. We also have John Hader as Lance, the street musician. Street magician. And Jack Shepard. Oh, what did I Musician. say? Lance played by John Hader, who has a assistant follow him around, played by the guy who plays Pedro in Napoleon Dynamite, filming him. Right. Yes, I forgot about him. And then we've got Dax Shepard as Gale, the man who doesn't wear shirts, but also may not have a job. Yeah, it's never clear if he's actually a model or not. So this takes us really to point number two. This is where we learned that the movie is not just set in the 48 hours, but we've cut back to New York. Kristen Bell has returned... And is just trying to live her life, but these men keep accosting her. Go ahead. Feast your eyes. Yes. I've seen that look before. You're intimidated because I'm a model. But I don't want you to be scared, okay? I'm a normal guy. This is my portfolio. It's kind of my calling card. These are mostly non-paying jobs or spec work. So she runs through the park. As one does. Central Jogging park, around. Just, you know, going for a run. And then you see Will Arnett painting her and... He picks up his painting gear and starts chasing her, so she starts running faster as he calls out to her. But then in the weirdest twist of all, he trips and she goes back to comfort yeah, him. Yeah, dumb move, this Beth. strange man who has been actively chasing her through Central And Park. shouting about how he needs to see her feet, because he's been drawing these, frankly, pretty good pictures of her, except they have giant cartoony feet. Yeah, he just can't get feet right, even though he seems to be very experienced around them. Maybe he can't imagine them, and that's why he's so obsessed with seeing people's feet. Because he has, like, a block where he can't... Like, some people can't visualize things in their brains. He just can't visualize feet. Which is a shame when that's the only thing you're sexually attracted to in a right. person. This is his tragic quality. This is what makes him a true Shakespearean hero. Precisely. <laughs> so he's chasing her around. The magician is harassing her. Danny DeVito, like, shows up at her work, wanting to give her sausages. But he also donates a ton of money to the Guggenheim so that he gets special Because he's a class act. Shows up with a basket of sausages. And, yeah, who else? Well, I, I guess think she's at a restaurant when Gail sits down with her. Yeah, and just takes his shirt off in a restaurant. Oh, that's right, because he's sitting next to her at a booth and goes, You know, I find myself looking at you instead of looking in a mirror, and that's never happened before. Yeah, I mean, that's the compliment. That's how you know. Yeah. He is definitely doing well at the self-obsessed person, trying to pretend to be in love. 
And of course, you have the meta narrative there of Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard being in a relationship at the time. Of course. And then you also have a man in the background just straight up ogling him when he takes his shirt off in the restaurant. That guy's great. He never changes his facial expression. Everyone else in the restaurant's reacting like, oh, put your shirt on. This is gross. And he's there just like taking it all in. So this weird stuff is going on. And we find out the cause of it when Kristen Bell's sister calls her to reveal that Beth being in the fountain, taking out coins, was front page news in Rome. And so then Beth's sister explains the curse of the fountain to her and that she needs to return the coins to the fountain in order to end the curse. But Beth's like, I can't go to the fountain because I got this big gala at work soon. So I'm going to have to put up with this for days. This movie takes place over like two weeks at most. Two weeks at most until an ambiguous time cut at the end. Yes. So while she's being pursued by these men, Nick is also pursuing her, which brings us to point three, where he brings flowers to her work and is just genuinely being a cute man being cute actually you know going about this in a more normal way every time i've ever put myself out there i've gotten hurt every time it's like i meet a guy and i think it's great and anyone else would just be thinking about how much great art's gonna get and i'm constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop You know, lightning does strike once in a while, Beth. Trust me, I know. (laughs) I like when she gets startled at work and she spills her empty cup of coffee and then proceeds to clean up no mess. I don't think I noticed that. She's like rubbing napkins on her desk, but there's nothing there because the coffee cup was empty. Incredible. So her assistant, played by Kate Micucci, screws up. They lose the centerpiece for this gala she's planning, which means she'll be fired. But then somehow, in a very unexplained way, Nick has access to a famous artist's hidden piece that no one's ever seen. Well, it's because it's a picture of him right after he got struck by lightning while playing a football game at Syracuse. We're told that he was like a serious contender for the Heisman. Like he was going to have a career in the NFL. And then he got struck by lightning during a football game while being tackled or something. Yeah, so two people are tackling him and he's struck in the head by lightning. So it's a photo of him like on the ground. His helmet's been knocked off, like looking in total despair through the rain. And the photographer took it and loved it and gave it to him. And he never released it to anybody because he was like, this is a photo of my worst moment. Right. But it's called Agony, and the theme of the gala is pain. Which is, like, very emo for 2010 Kristen Bell. Yeah, so, you know, it worked out. But then that's when she's, like, realizing I'm actually interested in him and giving it a shot. And they're, like, she's finding him very cute. They have a good time. They're going through the city. At one point, he surprises her behind a door, and she sprays him with breath spray. (laughs) That scene also, so dumb, still made me laugh. Yeah. The other thing we need to say before they go on their excellent blind date, where they know who each other are, but the date is still blind, we do need to mention that Bobby Moynihan is Josh Duhamel's compatriot. Also worth noting, Josh Duhamel works in print media, because it's a rom-com, and somebody has to. He's, again, this is one of those tropes that they put onto the man instead of the woman. Yeah, so Bobby Moynihan is like, wait a minute, she's maybe seeing other dudes. So Bobby Moynihan stalks and takes a photo of all the dudes who are tracking her down. But Kristen Bell's not in any of them. So when Bobby Moynihan is like, look at all these men. They're just 
pictures of men. Yeah, there's no evidence that she's actually even talking to them at all. There's no evidence she's been in the same place as them ever. So Bobby Moynihan is just playing the LeFou to Josh Duhamel's Gaston. That's exactly what it is. I kind of would love if the two of them sang Gaston. Like, Bobby Moynihan would be a good LeFou. And Josh Duhamel could play Gaston. It works. No one's got a swell cleft in his chin like Josh Duhamel. Yes, true. Does he? I think so. I have no idea. He does use antlers in all of his decorating. What's his name in this movie? Nick. Nick. That's right. How how could I forget? I would think you would remember that name! I know, that is my boyfriend's name. He does not. Or seems to not. But he has a beard almost always, so it's hard to know. And he's a super success, don't you know, can't you guess? Uh, he divorced Fergie last year. There's just one guy in town who's got all of it down! Okay. (laughs) And his name's Nick. Anyway, so... So they go on a date. He's like, there's this cool restaurant. You have to go to the restaurant with me to get the picture for your exhibit. And she's like, fine. And they go, and that's where we see Kristen Schaal wearing night vision goggles. Which, Kristen Schaal could always wear night vision goggles, and I'd buy it. Right, exactly. I'm like, oh yeah, sure, Kristen Schaal, normal. So, it's one of those, you know, blind dining experiences where it's supposed to- Wait a minute, wait, 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 One of those, is this a thing? Yeah, this is a thing. What? You didn't know about this? This was like a big thing No, I don't know about this. Okay, let's be clear. For starters, I mostly eat sandwiches. Number two, why would you eat in a pitch black room? This movie shows all the problems with that. People are always bumping into each other. Yes, it is a very clearly pointed critique. Isn't it a safety hazard? I am sure. Hold on. Wikipedia. Dark dining. Uh, Since 1999, such restaurants have opened in many parts of the world. The first was set up in Paris in 1997. And I feel like it... Of course the French would be behind this. Yeah, by 2014, there were claimed to be dozens of restaurants around the world. But in 2008, there were only six. So this falls, like, exactly right in the time when it was a thing, if that makes sense. Weird. Yes. If you have been to one of these restaurants, tweet at us, tell us about it, hashtag dining in the dark. If you write about your experience in the form of Springsteen lyrics, I will Venmo you a dollar. So anyway... They show all of the problems with this. Uh, Kristen Schaal is using this as an excuse to feel up Nick. Yeah, what the heck? Then all of the men somehow find, like, get their hands on night vision goggles and find her. They're drawn by her magical aura. But how did the restaurant give them night vision goggles? I'm guessing they, like, tied up the staff and took them. Yeah, so she has to run away and leave Nick behind, which she's done before. Because the creepy men show up. Yeah, they keep dating. Like, they visit the art gallery at one point. They romanticize Picasso banging teenagers. Yeah, and the teenagers then killing themselves because Picasso emotionally abused them. Yeah. They go back to Nick's apartment, and they're, like, making out. She's getting really into it. She's excited. They kiss, which is great, uh, because when attractive people kiss in movies, it's a good thing. And then she finds a poker chip on his poker table. And it matches the poker chip she took out of the fountain. And she's like, oh no, our love isn't real. I care about you, but you don't actually care about me. You're enchanted. And that's a different movie. So then we get to point four, which is the day of the gala. We're not staying here. You're not staying here. I need to be at the Guggenheim. We take my car. I just bring over from Italia. You have a car? It's multi grande. But, but, uh, no, I'd be fine. She has 
cut Nick out of her life, and he doesn't understand why. He's like, I am into you. We were having a nice time. What's wrong with you? Valid point. And she just keeps saying, you're not actually in love with me. Without explaining anything. But before the gala, she's getting ready in her apartment, and she finds out that she doesn't have to return the coins to Italy. She can just give them back to the man. Right. And unfortunately, right after this, her assistant steals the coins For deliberately. For an unexplained reason. Well, I think by this point, she knows that Kristen Bell thinks that Nick is in love with her because of the coin. And the assistant is like, this still seems like a nice dude, so you should not end this. Which is a weird thing to do. Yeah, it's very weird. But anyway, all of the men show up at the gala. Or, no, all the men show up at her apartment. And she convinces them to help her get to the gala, even though the power's gone out and she's running late. So they get in Will Arnett's tiny Italian clown car, which... Hey, in Italy, it's midsize. (laughs) They weave through the traffic and get to the gala. What I love is that Kristen Bell says, drive like you're in Italy. And Will Arnett is like, oh, of course, and starts driving... Frankly, like he's in Italy. <laughs> like It's funnier because he's not Italian. Yeah, in the it's like she's basically like drive like you're in Italy and he would be going, I don't know what that means, but I'll be a bad driver. Well, I guess he's been to Italy because he had to throw the coin in the fountain. Yeah, the logic doesn't hold up completely in regards to him. But anyway, they make it to the gala and then while they're there, she finds out that Nick has still brought the painting even though she broke up with him. Of course, it's worth noting that this is like peak nice guy Danny DeVito when the men are annoyed that she's going to try to get back with Nick kind of in a way. And Danny DeVito is like, if we really love her, we'll do what it is that she wants and we'll support her in making this decision. And I love that she comes to her full realization when she's just talking like, I don't want to be with you. I love Nick. Like she like lets it slip out and it's a moment of revelation. Yeah, it's so weird. But then she gives the coins. But nice guy Danny DeVito. Yes, Danny DeVito is by far the best of the men. And so she gives the coins back in a scene reminiscent of The Wizard of Oz. I mean, explicitly so. Yes. So she gives back each coin, and then it flashes back to their life as they threw the coin in the fountain. And they kind of explain their love situation. When she gets to Dak Shepard at the end, she goes, I'll miss you, least of all. And he still remains confused. So... She meets up with Nick and they're kind of running around and she has to give him the poker chip, but she drops it and it rolls all the way down the goog and he picks it up and she's like, all right, now you're not in love with me. I guess it's over. And he's like, what the heck are you talking about? And she's like, oh, you still are into me? He's like, yeah, of course, like whatever. And they make out and it's happy. And then, oh, so, but before that, which will become important later, John Hader, Lance had done a magic trick with the chip and switched him. Oh, right. his hands. Which, you know, comes to play immediately because we cut to their wedding. Point five! (laughs) Didn't you say at Umberto's bachelor party? The Padre cleaned me out at the poker table, yeah. (laughs) So they are getting ready for the wedding and Lance comes into her room before the wedding and hands her the chip and says oh sorry i gave you the wrong one somehow he knew and gave her the actual chip from the fountain and she's like oh no completely breaks down nick's love is fake and so then you get the classic wedding they get to her saying i do and she says i can't and she leaves and runs and gets well no it's not an i do situation it's the priest quintuples down on does anybody object to oh, this oh yes a thing that is not in weddings no but 
the priest just is begging somebody to object. He's like, anybody? It could be anybody. You don't even have to know them. Just object, somebody. And Nick is clearly reacting like it's weird. But then Kristen Bell is like, I can't do this to you, Nick, because you're under a spell! And runs away. And then climbs back into the fountain. Yeah, she climbs and starts back yelling into the, at the fountain, fountain in her wedding dress and is yelling again. And then Nick comes back out and he's like, what are you doing? He climbs into the fountain too. They talk. She explains the situation. She hands him the chip and he feels the same way. Nothing happens. But the priest out in the street starts screaming about how he's free from temptation. Well, because they're talking and she realizes that the priest had also been playing cards that night and cleaned him out. So he wouldn't have had any chips. And so she then puts the chip back in the fountain and that's when, in a twist that I called, from the moment she picked up the chips, the priest says, like, I'm free from temptation. And then they get married and live happily ever after. Yeah. The what a weird movie. This is such a weird what movie. A weird movie. So, do you find the romance of When in Rome believable? I genuinely do not know. What do we do? <laughs> I have no idea what to rate this. Because... I think I have to say... Kind of no. I have to say no because of the situation, but the characters of Beth and Nick falling in love makes sense. Sure. We don't get a time frame on their marriage. They could have dated for anywhere from, like, one day to several years. So that doesn't really... In my brain, it's a year. Right. So that doesn't make it less believable either, the time frame. I think the problem is... everything else... Buying into this enchantment, which I guess is real. It is real. She is proven correct. So, again, in the world of the movie, all of it kind of holds up. Yeah. But it's also impossible <laughs> so what are we gonna to do? believe. We rate the believability of every romance on a 10-point scale, where 0 means we believe none of it, and 10 means we believe all of it. So where do you rate when in Rome? I feel like I'm just going to give it a straight 5. Right in the middle. <laughs> I'm gonna go crazy. This is an eight. <laughs> okay. Wow. I'm just gonna say it's as believable as it is unbelievable. Smack in the middle. See, I I was gonna start there, but you kind of talked me into how in the world of the movie, it mostly makes sense. Okay. I'm knocking off points for her not calling the cops on the other men. Yeah. Except for Danny DeVito, who's great. Do you think that Beth or Nick are dateable? Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. They're both great. Nick needs to work on his coordination. Yes, but it's... Well, actually, no, it would not be charming in real life. It would be incredibly frustrating. Everything about it would be annoying. But yeah, I think they're dateable. Yeah, definitely. Do you think they'd stay together? I mean, we hear a lot from Lee Pace about how she puts her work before everything. Yeah, but Lee Pace learned how to love it. He also seems like a dick. Oh, yeah, completely. But he's so attractive. It's not like Lee Pace in Lincoln levels of dickishness, because he's not openly racist. But he's like everyday dick. Yeah, just a normal New York dick. Do you think that they would stay together? Yeah, I think so. I think they fit well together. Yeah, I don't see a reason why they wouldn't. If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? Hmm. I don't know. I wrote down in my notes, gay black man. And I don't remember where he came into things. But I... Is it one of Kristen Bell's friends? No, I think it's someone at the meeting where Angelica Houston says, We all have sisters, Beth. Oh, yeah, it's a reaction shot. Oh, yes. And I wrote that down because he is my choice. But clearly, he didn't actually leave that much of an impression. If I were to go for real, probably Nick, because he is 
played by Josh Duhamel. Yeah, he's a cutie and he's fun. But he's a little He plays too poker sp- with his friends. A little too sportif for me. See, that's great for me. Yeah. So I'm going to go with reaction shot man. I think I'm going Nick. My runner-up, Danny DeVito. Will, I actually have a strong opinion on this. Okay. Many movies we cover are turned into stage musicals. Do you think this should be a musical? Of course it that should. Is my opinion too. Absolutely yes. This would be a fantastic musical. I would love to see this in musical form. I would love to see it in musical form with the same cast. Exactly. This has just the right level of weirdness that it would be enhanced wonderfully in a musical. And it would be a great stage musical. This wouldn't be a good movie musical. Like, adding songs to this movie would not make it better, but seeing this plot on stage with music, great. Perfect. High schoolers deserve to put on this show. Exactly. I do want to, speaking of music, the 1954 movie that this is kind of pulled from, Three Coins in the Fountain, it won two Oscars. One for color cinematography, and the other for original song. The original song is also called Three Coins in a Fountain. It was written by... Jules Stein and Sammy Kahn, great songwriters. They were not allowed to watch the movie or read the script when they were commissioned to write a song. So they wrote a song in an hour and recorded with Frank Sinatra the next day. And they won the Oscar. They were not allowed to? Well, they weren't given it. I don't think they were actively prohibited. But it was kind of like, we need the song tomorrow. That's And we don't have a script or movie to give to you. That's insane. Hollywood, baby! Oh my god. Anyway... I think that about wraps it up for this film. Next week, we are going to be doing our first ever Coen Brothers movie, which I think will be a fun thing for us to do. We're headed back to the wonderful Holly Hunter and, of course, Nicolas Cage to look at Raising Arizona. We've covered both of them. We have talked about both of them. We've covered them both in the same year. This is the same year as Moonstruck and Broadcast News. Wait, all three of these movies came out the same year? It's unbelievable! What a year. Anyway, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts really help people to find the show. All right, William. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from when in Rome? I think the important lesson is that a clip-on tie is not a deal-breaker because that's what Nick is wearing at that opening wedding, and he still comes off as very charming. I was going to say, show up late to a wedding and really make an entrance, but not your wedding, someone else's. Well, yeah, if it's your wedding, presumably dating is behind you. (laughs) Valid. A piece of advice you shouldn't take is put a coin in the fountain of love, because it may work, but it requires someone to get in the fountain and pick out a coin, which no one seems to do. Oh, I was going to say, putting a coin in the fountain is a bad idea because somebody else might take it out and you might wind up in love with the wrong person. Yeah, it seems like a very risky situation. All right, well, until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! Three coins in the fountain Each one seeking happiness Thrown by three hopeful lovers Which one will the fountain bless? Three hearts in the fountain Each heart longing for its home There they lie in the fountain
Somewhere in the heart of Rome Which one 